So we're in Ezekiel, and last week we finished Ezekiel 32, which brings us, of course, to Ezekiel 33. And we have a change in direction, because 32 and before were prophecies against Egypt and so forth. Now we shifted gears, and we're talking about Ezekiel being the watchman. Now, 33 is almost a repeat of chapter 3. If you read chapter 3 and 33 together, they're very, very similar. We'll go through it, obviously, but there's a couple of interesting things. One of them is he talks about being muted and unmuted, and that happens three times. Let me pick up at chapter 3, verse 22. And the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I rose and went out of the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. And I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and he spoke with me and said to me, Go shut yourself within your house. And you, O son of man, behold, cords shall be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute." and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. This conceptually is very much like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is in the presence of God and gets told, Keep speaking but close their eyes and their ears so they won't understand. And this is very much the same kind of thing. God has sort of given up in disgust is not the right term, but determined that they're going to be chastised. So he's not going to give them any more warnings. Now, between chapter 3 and chapter 24, which is the next time this term shows up, he's talking his head off doing a lot of talking, being inquired of, etc. So I don't know when he got turned back on, if you will. But then, back in 2425, As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. The news, by the way, being the destruction of Jerusalem. And... On that day, your mouth will be opened to be the fugitive, and you shall speak and be no longer mute. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. Well, in today's passage in 33, we're going to get the fulfillment of that. So what isn't clear to me is between 3 and 24, he was told to be mute in 3, And then he proceeds to prophesy and talk to everybody and all that kind of stuff, so I'm not sure what's going on. But anyway, the idea that he will be unmuted when a messenger comes announcing the destruction of Jerusalem, that's going to happen where we are tonight. So we're all the way down to chapter 33, which reads very much like chapter 3. 32 was excoriation of Pharaoh, and now... We're done with that for a while and off to another subject. So chapter 33. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, 
If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. If he'd paid attention to the watchman, he would have saved his life. The history of Israel is, of course, God's prophets are the watchmen. And they keep sounding the trumpet metaphorically, and Israel pays them no attention. Now, the other thing to understand is in Israel, there were prophets that were not sent by God. So you had all sorts of people prophesying, quote, unquote, and you would have a garbled message because some of them would prophesy, wow, everything's going to be fine. You're going to have victory. They'll never take you. And somebody else would prophesy, in this case Ezekiel, oh no, you're going to be destroyed. So the people had a choice of which prophets to listen to. In that sense, they are very much like us today. We have a wide array of choices of who to listen to for information. And most people will pick somebody that is congenial to their point of view. And furthermore, talking to a friend this morning, he gets most of his information from network news. So he's looking at me when I'm talking about vaccines, for example, like, what kind of conspiracy nut are you? Because he isn't getting that same information. Slight digression here, I'm reading a book, and I don't remember the name of it right off the top of my head, but it's got two concepts that are really interesting. One is reporting is dead. And the thing that killed it is the internet and the cell phone. Because what reporting used to be is, I just went to this place, I saw what was going on, and I am now telling you what went on in this place where I was and you were not. That's what the essence of reporting is. They can't keep up with the cell phone because every time a major event of any kind happens, you have dozen or more people recording it on their cell phones and uploading it to the internet. So the professional reporters, quote unquote, can't keep up because the internet is always going to be ahead of them. And so what news has become is opinion. They say, this is what happened here and this is what we think about it, but they aren't telling you something you don't know because you have other sources of information that are more timely than the broadcast news or the newspaper even worse. So all reportage has devolved into simply opinion. That's being killed also. And this book has what he calls the virtual editor. There's a really neat website. I don't remember the name of it. But it's got a series of two pictures, one of which is fake and one of which is real. And you're supposed to guess which is the fake and which is the real one. And my accuracy is a little better than 50%. In other words, the fakes have gotten so good that 
it's virtually impossible to tell a fake from a real photograph. Do you all remember a number of years ago, the Palestinians or the Lebanese, Hezbollah, I don't remember, somebody over there, put out this picture of an alleged Israeli airstrike in Lebanon, and within 20 minutes, it had been exposed as a fake, photoshopped. And they showed exactly how the fake was done and all that kind of stuff. That's what this guy calls the virtual editor. And what happens is when information hits the web, you have nerds all over the place that look at it and track it down. And with the web, you can find the data sources and you can you know, have analysis tools. So very quickly, bad information gets exposed as such by this virtual editor. Again, one of the things that the news folks used to pride themselves on was fact-checking. You know, we're making sure we're telling you the truth and all that kind of stuff. The Internet does it better and faster than they do. So that function is also rapidly dying. Back to our profits now. You've got a number of prophets in the gate, and they're all prophesying. And one of them is saying, ah, man, these Babylonians, they aren't going to be able to penetrate. We're going to stop them at the gates. We're going to be fine. Everything will be okay. And then you have Ezekiel and Jeremiah that says, pack your bags, you're going into exile. Who do you believe? Of course, typically you believe the one that's telling you what you want to hear, or you believe the one who is speaking in a way that is congenial to your temperament. So if you're a doom and gloom pessimist, oh yeah, Ezekiel's right. But if you sort of go along and everything's okay, then you're listening to the false prophets. So back to Ezekiel 33, when Ezekiel sounds the trumpet as the watchman on the wall, a whole lot of people don't listen because they don't want to hear what he's saying and they don't want to make the changes necessary to avoid the calamity that's about to happen. So what God is saying through Ezekiel here is, you're responsible for telling them what I tell you to tell them. If you do that and they ignore you, that's not your problem, it's their problem. If you don't speak, however, then they will go away in their iniquity. In other words, they're still going, to, going into exile or being killed. We're not rescuing them. But I will require their blood of you because you didn't issue the warning. So, verse 5. So he heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. And if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. In other words, he's still going, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Now, it appears in Ezekiel that when we talk about the house of Israel, we're talking about the remnant that is still in the land, which is mostly Judah. Other prophets make a distinction between the house of Israel and the house of Judah, northern and southern kingdom. And so you have to pay attention and figure out which way it's going. In Ezekiel, it's pretty much uniformly all Israel, which is the folks that are remaining in the land. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. 
Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will recur at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So in either case, the wicked one's going. The wicked one has an opportunity to change and avoid going, but if he doesn't change, he's going in either case, and the only question then becomes whether the watchman is culpable for any of that. Verse 10, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, in other words, God is telling Ezekiel to speak to Israel and say to Israel, Hey, Israel, this is what you said. So thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Interestingly enough, no coincidence, this is not a kosher word, I was listening to Ron Dark. And one of the things he said is, when someone gets into wickedness, there is a tendency to be fatalistic. Oh, I'm too far gone. And hence, not correct their ways. Now, part of, oh, I'm too far gone, is a desire not to correct their ways. That's part of the deal. But the fatalism is, I'm so far gone that I can't get back, so I might just as well keep doing it. That's what Israel is saying here. We are so far gone that we can't get back, and we might just as well keep on doing this stuff we enjoy anyway. Verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So what God is saying is there's this fatalistic attitude that you have that we are so far down the road that we can't get back is incorrect. And again, most of this is a repeat of chapter 3. So, verse 12. And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. And by the way, there's a proverb for that. One dead bug spoils a whole pot of perfume. And the way I like to describe it, your pastor can be exemplary years and years and years, but molest one choir boy, and it's all over. And all the good that you have done gets forgotten in that transgression. And that's what God is saying. Similar the other way is if you have been a pastor that has been molesting choir boys and you stop and you repent and you try and repair the damage that you have done, then God will forgive. That's what this is saying. Now, having said that, don't get me wrong, you still may go to jail for molesting choir boys, but in God's eyes, you will be forgiven. 13. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. 
But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. The idea is, if you have lived a mostly good life, and you are counting on banked, saved up credit, you can't do that. 14. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Now notice here, by the way, when the wicked stops doing iniquity, that's not enough. He's got to stop doing iniquity, and then he's got to go back and repair the damage that he did to the best of his ability. That's to preclude the very human, I'm going to sin, I'm going to sin, I'm going to sin, I'm going to pray for forgiveness, and I'm going to move on keeping the fruit of my sin with me. Well, you don't get to keep the big bank account that you got by cheating. Human nature is, well, I've stopped. Everything should be okay now. No, you've still got all this rustled stuff in your bank. You've got to give that back. Certainly, turning is a good thing, but it is insufficient. You've got to restore as best you can. 16. None of his sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. 17. Yet your people say, The way of the Lord is not just, when it is their own way that is not just. Pause there for a minute. The poster child for this is Deuteronomy 31. So if you go to Deuteronomy 31 and verse 17, Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. Now, the sense of that is not all this bad stuff has happened to us because God has abandoned us because of our wickedness. The sense of that is God has not been faithful to us. He has abandoned us. Therefore, all this bad stuff has happened. What God has been saying through the prophet up until now is the reason I'm going to abandon you is because of your wickedness. That part they just don't get. All they see is the calamity that has come upon them, and they recognize, gee, we've lost the protection of God. God hasn't been faithful. we got a covenant here. He's supposed to watch over us. He's abandoned us. He's forsaken us. Not our fault. Something wrong with God. And that's what Ezekiel is talking about here in verse 17. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just. That's the same thing that's being said in Deuteronomy 31. They're complaining about their status, and they're complaining and saying God is not just because we are in this bad situation because God hasn't rescued us. What they neglect is the fact that they have gone away from God, and God told them back in Deuteronomy, if you do that, you're going to be up to your hips and hairy Babylonians, and I'm not going to help you. Let's do 17 and take a run at the end of the paragraph. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just, when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does 
injustice, he shall die for it. When the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is right, he shall live by them. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. You remember we talked about this a number of times before. Ezekiel is prophesying from Babylon. He is talking to the exiles in Babylon, and this is their attitude. They are really grumpy about being in exile, and they're blaming God for their exile. They got that part right. But they are not blaming their own behavior for God's turning his back on them and allowing Babylon to take them into exile. That part they're missing. They're sitting, what do we do? We, you know, we went to the temple, we did the sacrifices, we tithed, we did all that stuff. Why are we here? That's their attitude. And what Ezekiel is doing is explaining to them why they're there. So now we're all the way down to verse 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, in the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. All right, now we talked about this at the beginning of the hour. This is the trigger to unmute Ezekiel. So the city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was open and I was no longer mute. Now, remember in Ezekiel 24, this was prophesied as when you get a refugee from Jerusalem saying the place is destroyed, you will no longer be mute. And what I said at the beginning is it doesn't sound like he's been mute at all. So I'm not quite understanding that, but that's the bookend. He was muted in three, prophesied unmuting in 24, and here in 33, the unmuting happens. And in the middle of that, he's written 30 chapters. Uh, so I'm not understanding what the mute part is. If anybody knows, by all means, let me know. So 23, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land. But we are many. The land is surely given us to possess. Human logical fallacy. They can't arrest all of us. If we get a big enough group, we can get away with it. Now, you've heard that. All of you have. Sin recruits and sin loves company. So we get a whole bunch of us, surely it's going to be all right. So what he's saying here is Abraham was only one guy and God gave him the whole place. Look how many we are. Therefore, it must be ours. That's the attitude that's being displayed here. So verse 25, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat flesh with the blood and lift up your eyes to your idols and shed blood. Shall you then possess the land? You rely on the sword. You commit abominations. And each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? Say this to them, thus says the Lord God. As I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword, and whoever is in the open field I will give to the beasts to be devoured. And those who are in strongholds and in caves shall die by pestilence. 
what God is saying here is these guys are saying, sure, we've got the land. And God says, yeah? You do this and you expect the land. You do that and you expect the land. You do this and you, you know, get a grip is basically what's being said here. 28. And I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and her proud might shall come to an end. And the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations that they have committed. What happened under Nebuchadnezzar is exactly that. Nebuchadnezzar on his second pass through leveled Jerusalem. That was what the refugee who came back to report reports is the second visit by Nebuchadnezzar, everything is destroyed. The people who are being destroyed don't get it. They are saying, God, you're not being fair. That's what this whole chapter has been about is he is explaining to them why this is happening to them and he's also explaining to them God's justice and God's mercy. So God says if the righteous goes through most of his life righteous and then at the end starts to do wickedness, tough. All of his righteousness will count for nothing. Similarly, if somebody goes through his life being wicked and changes, he will live, assuming that he makes restoration. Verse 30. As for you, son of man, when your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they do not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who plays lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays while on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. What's being said there is they are regarding Ezekiel as a stand-up comic. They're coming and listening to him, but it's for the entertainment value. He's got a good voice and he's singing body songs and so forth. So they're coming to listen to him, but it is not so that they'll turn and repent. It is simply for the entertainment value. That's what that paragraph says. Verse 33. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. The deal here is they are coming to mock him, sort of like the cliche cartoon where you got the guy with the beard walking around with a sign saying the end is near and everybody laughs at him and mocks him. He's entertainment. So they're regarding Ezekiel and his prophecies in that same vein. Okay, this is the guy that's walking around with a sign saying the end is near and we can all laugh at him and mock him. They hear what he has to say, but they don't take it seriously. So then... When it comes to pass what he is saying, at that point they will realize that the prophecies are, in fact, from God. And one of the things about Israel, both Israel and Babylon and Israel and Israel, is they had all sorts of prophets. 
prophesying all sorts of things. There's only one of them that was sent by God. The rest of them are false prophets, and the false prophets are saying things that people like to hear. Oh, yeah, it's going to be fine. No, they won't be able to take the city. Yeah, God's going to save us. All this kind of stuff. And the example I used earlier is just like news outlets today. You got your choice. You can listen to any of a number. You can listen to doom and gloom and disaster. You can listen to sunny stuff. Or, you know, you got an infinite choice of news outlets and you pick the one you like. That's what they're doing with prophets. And God is saying, yeah, they may come and laugh at you and so forth. But this is going to happen, and then they will realize that you're the one who was telling them the truth. <laughs> 